this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 5 Well, it will be good to hear some Beethoven, Leszczycki began at a particular lesson. Today I have heard nothing but waltzes, mazurkas, capriccios. Besides, I have had... You cannot imagine the people that have come to me during the last few days, wanting to know exactly how this and that was done. One even asked me what program for my feelings I had in certain pieces. If he could know that, he said, he would not ask for any other instruction. They all wanted names for pieces. They wanted names for all the emotions. One does not know whether to laugh or cry. There have been some singers here. One tenor left his book of Schumann songs here on the piano, and I looked it over because he had written down a great many words to indicate what feelings were proper. I must tell you this, and you will laugh. Look at this. Tears of joy. Whenever I gaze within thine eyes, all care and sorrow swiftly flies. Feel happy and look rapturous. And when I kiss thy lips so sweet, my cure is perfect and complete. Shake yourself a little and look heavenward. And when I lean upon thy breast, fright. Wonderful! Leszczycki exclaimed. Now, the pianists try to do the same in a different way. This is no joke at all. There are many who spend valuable time tabulating their emotions and inventing a story to tell the music by instead of letting the music tell the story. It is all bosh, he said. What would such a one write for the sonata appassionata, for instance? You will have an experience today, he said. There are now some teachers here who want to listen to lessons. There are two very dignified ones coming today, if you do not mind. Two ladies highly recommended as teachers. But yours is the last lesson, and I have plenty of time with nothing to think of, nothing to worry about until tomorrow. What are you going to do this evening? Are you tired? Or are you going to be tired? Get the beautiful Elise, and we will go somewhere. Somewhere, I don't know where, does it matter? We will go to Putzleinsdorf to supper, where there's the little garden and we can talk. Oh, I've forgotten. I thought I was free now for the rest of the day and night, but no, Madame, name unknown, is here, and we are going to one of her twenty-course dinners. All champagne, no beer at all. I like beer also at the dinner. But all those twenty courses or so, it's really too tiresome. I won't go. I will tell you now what we shall do. I shall be ill and suffering, and in need of rest, and a walk into the country. I'll steal out to Putzleinsdorf, and if you and Elise, or Schutt, or Jane, or Mary should happen to be there, well, it will not be our fault if we are not unhappy. We could meet out in the other direction, 
and walk over the road Beethoven often walked. Have you ever been to the Central Cemetery? You know the tragic story of the theater an der Wien. Years ago they were giving a performance of the Tales of Hoffman when a fire broke out. As the poor people tried to get out, the big front door fell in, pushed down by the people outside trying to open it to save them. It made the theater nothing but a trap, and nearly everyone was burned to death. There are hundreds and hundreds of little graves in the central cemetery, and the opera has never been performed since that time. The emperor forbade it. Someone ought to go to the emperor and ask him for permission to have it brought out again. I think I will go to him myself. The emperor is a wonderful man in many ways. Beethoven would have respected him. His majesty does not know much about art, but then he does not pretend to know. However, he is proud of some accomplishments, for example, of his skill at billiards. One of his friends was banished last summer for having once allowed himself to win a game from the emperor. But the emperor is, on the whole, not unkind, and you and Elise will have seen for yourselves how he can smile and return your curtsies with a charming bow and salute. In Ischel, of course, he is free and happier and likes well enough to see pretty ladies dropping him curtsies on the woody road. You had the white dress last summer, and Elise the blue, or grey. No, it was blue. Her eyes were not so blue as the dress. What a pity that she gave up her piano. She who had leisure, good taste, personality, and great beauty of person and character. Oh, I weep to think of her. Only courage she lacked. She played the Mendelssohn Concerto very well, very well indeed. It was the first time that she had played in the class. She closed her piano the next day, feeling that she could never be an artist. You remember, the cartman was ordered to take her piano away as soon as possible. Really, it is too sad. But, of course, one must realize how necessary it is to get accustomed to playing before people. That is always an ordeal at first, and has to be studied as well as anything else. But now I never speak to her about it, and we remain the best of friends even without the piano. Perhaps really better friends, because I know her better. I see her whole character. She is a noble soul. Oh, if more pianists had her qualities. We'll meet tonight, I hope. One thing more I had on my mind. I want to get the tales of Hoffman unearthed, and I think really of going to the emperor about it. When are you going to study the Appassionata? You must have the notes of that learned for a long time. It is not difficult to learn, but you must be able to think over the phrases and parts for a long time. This part, the middle movement, is not your pleasant walk in the country. Beethoven was walking up to the altar, in his imagination at least, and he didn't crawl, not he. He walked with his head up. It's all religious, every bit but pagan, you understand, not too Christian. It's not humble, it is beautifully proud. Go into the votive Kirche on your way home, and walk up the aisle in this spirit, and you will know how to play this part. There's more tenderness in the first movement. Paderewski plays that movement better than anyone else in the world. He puts something in it. I do not know what, but, well, you feel glad you are alive.
You know, I was curious to see him again after he first went to America, England, and France. I thought the success might spoil him, but it only made him play better. At the first chords he played me when he returned, I said to myself, No, he's all right. Nothing will ever hinder his progress, and he has fantasy. He is far from tabulating his emotions, far from that. He is free of all that nonsense. There is not one of these Beethoven sonatas that should be limited to a program of feeling. Read carefully the Hanslick book. It is not infallible, but you will find valuable suggestions well worth thinking over. But to play that first movement well, you must have a love for all the world. It does not matter for what part of the world you have the greatest affection and longing, but it must show in your playing. Hanslick speaks of an adjective playing, and his ideas are sound. This is a tender passage. This is a noble sentence. Here are proud crescendos. The tones march on proudly. Then you are depressed and languid. Give yourself to these sonatas. Now, play me the theme of your sonata, the A-flat major. I used to play this sonata a great deal. He listens as I play him the theme. It is too torn up, he comments, turning around. It lacks what the Italians call desinvoltura. Why is that in your playing, I would like to know. You have two or three poor qualities that we will speak about. They exist more in your playing than in your manner otherwise. I do not notice them in your personal bearing. I wish you would talk more about yourself. It is good practice and helps me too. I do not know whether your life has been sad or merry. You do not smile any too much. Your sister smiles more. But even if you smiled all the time, I should not know whether it disguised your real feelings or not. Some people smile when they are sad. Others look serious when they have not a serious thought in their heads and never did have. You have friends with sour faces, one in particular. I am sure he does not smile in his soul. One must smile in one's soul. That is everything. I am afraid of those people who never smile. Your friend sometimes comes to see me, but he looks as if he had nothing but enemies. He is very polite. Do you like him, really? You can say anything you like to me. You have two or three little habits also. Don't be shocked. They are not very bad ones. I cannot help interrupting him. Did you mean to imitate me the other day when you held your right hand across your waist as you walked across the room? Yes, I did, he answers. There is something about that little mannerism of yours that I do not like. Let me see your hand. Let your hand lie in your lap. Well, you have been studying hard, I see. Your hand has taken on strength and character and begins to look like a pianist's hand, but when you hold it up that way, that has become habitual with you, it looks weak and white and ineffective. It disturbs me always, excuse me, but it does, and I can't deny it. It is a good thing always to have about you a certain amount of self-criticism. Not too much to make you self-conscious, but a good, wholesome, running criticism with humor. Humor, you understand. You remember the opera singer who was dismissed, not because she sang badly, 
but because she rubbed her nose so much that it became fiery red and she didn't look well. I notice you have a way of covering your face when you laugh. It is only a little thing, but it is not specially becoming, and you are not Japanese, so why form the habit? But there are little habits in playing that you must constantly recognize and criticize as good or bad. The fingers are nothing but little trained animals and know nothing themselves, so that everything depends on your direction. You are sometimes halting in your rhythms, and I do not understand it. You must cure that at once, he says. It can be cured by thinking correctly. Some people talk about feeling in playing and get themselves into a labyrinth of thought and calculation and program making that only spoils the playing. Then there comes along a little person who has rhythm and can make beautiful tones and perhaps knows very little but can think to some purpose. You have to study sometimes years to get beautiful tones. Some people never get them. Rhythm is your feeling and you can put it instantly into your playing. Now, this minute, he said. You can conquer the world with rhythm and beautiful tones. You can think of rhythm as the conduct of life. As for technique, that is different. If one studies with intelligence, it is a small matter. Anyone can get it who studies well. But to put those finishing touches to technique so that it is a beautiful technique is different. There's that little sonata, Scarlatti, for instance, very easy to learn to play at first. It lasts three minutes played in tempo, but it takes six years to learn to play it well. My little arabesque is one of those difficult pieces to play well. Play that legato and flowing in a small room, but crisp and clear in the big hall. There are two interpretations for that. He went on for a long time, showing me pieces that could be interpreted in two or three ways. What is my bad habit in rhythm? I asked. No, I haven't forgotten, he replies, but I do not know the exact words to express it. It is something inborn, I should say, but you only show it at the piano. Perhaps you study with too much interruption of the ideas. I listened once for an hour behind your door. Your hausfrau gave me a comfortable chair and let me smoke. You stopped too often. I wonder just why you do that. When were you listening? I asked. The evening you were studying the Chopin you played in your last lesson. Think it over and see if you can find out the cause for yourself and let your melodies become more singing and your tempos smoother. You must put more joy in your playing. You must be happier in your study and in your playing before people. Take all the rules of singing for your melodies. I leave you a legacy of these little rules he says, scribbling down something on my notes. But get more happiness into your temples. That will be your own study and duty. What do you think, he said suddenly. Yesterday I had a pupil, I think one of Frau Bray pupils, excellently taught. Frau Bray is writing a book, a book about my, long pause, about my method. One has to call it something if one must write a book at all about the way to study. It is the most difficult thing to write about, and most books are worse than useless. But hers will be good, as good as a book can be. But method, well, 
method depends on the person you have before you. Now, no one could be better prepared for the life of playing than this pupil of hers, but I heard him play five pieces straight through, and noticed that as he approached the end he became very nervous. With every piece it was the same. I began to think, what is this man? What troubles has he had? Or doesn't he study a piece to the end? So I tested him. He could play the piece backward if necessary. He knew every bar. I said to him, play the fifteenth bar from the end. In an instant he did it. That means that he knows his piece. He sees it like a picture that you once shut your eyes before, then look at again and always remember. Some people try to remember their pieces by making the harmonies stand out as colors. Too many of these extraneous things are never good. Look at the different methods all over the world for learning the piano. All of them have something good about them, but they are all bad, too. Your memory must be mostly a musical memory. But what, then, is this man's particular trouble? Would you read me a poem that you don't know? I asked him. Very much amazed, he opened this little book here and read it. But before he had finished, his breath seemed to come with difficulty, and he became agitated. You are an intelligent and strong-willed man, I said to him. What makes you so nervous? You are young, too, and cannot have had great anxieties in your lifetime. I tried to make him tell me about himself, and he finally did, but with an expression of defiance on his face. At school he had always failed when he was made to speak a piece. He nearly always burst into tears and left the stage. Then they tried to teach him to make a speech, did everything to help him to overcome his nervousness. Finally he gave up going to school and went to a conservatory of music in another place. There his reputation had not followed him, and he took a new start. He succeeded in music, but when the final examinations came, and he expected to be able to play his piece to the end without breaking down, there seemed to be a fatality about it, and he did go all to pieces and gave up, feeling himself an utter failure. Now, he came yesterday, I have told him all kinds of things. I have told him he must learn to swim, learn to fence, learn to ride, do things, become accomplished until he gets confidence in himself. This is one way of overcoming nervousness. I want you never to have a failure, he said to me. You are the kind of person that gains much by successes and loses heart by failures. It is perhaps a certain confidence in life that is lacking in you that shows in your tempos. Keep the joy of life in you. Look at me, he said. It is only by not allowing myself to think of disagreeable things that I am here today. You know, troubles do not make Christians of everyone. A knock at the door was heard. We had already talked a long time, and it was five o'clock. Leshetitsky had forgotten that the two people were coming to listen to my lesson. Often he permitted this kind of thing to teachers who could stay in Vienna only a short time and who were not prepared to play for him. At this lesson the arrangement proved as instructive to me as to them, I am sure, for their few questions and their way of understanding his teaching brought to light such different interpretations of ideas that some of the questions I had always vaguely wanted to ask were answered. 
Leshetitsky loved to have questions put to him in the lessons, and really begged the pupil to ask them. But irrelevant and unintelligent questions with a lack of humor affected him as disagreeably as speechlessness, so one did not lightly ask him questions. And his pupils did well not only to show a variety of feeling, but to preserve a great deal of cheerfulness in all their lessons. The ladies entered ceremoniously. They were evidently very correct in everything, and in art, surely, of the entirely cerebral persuasion. This contrast with Leshetitsky would lead to something interesting, I was sure. Now we had to play more and talk less, and all that Leshetitsky said was directly applicable to the music I played. I started the first bar of the first variation slowly, and then brought the third bar into tempo. This I did, I think, quite unconsciously. It furnished the master with a pretext for a long talk to the teachers about knowing the musical values of a piece. You see, he said, she knows what she is doing. I didn't really. The motive resembles so closely the last bar of the theme that she feels the comparison and allows for it in the playing. It is a great thing to realize all the little points that are similar and to make these comparisons in music. That, after all, makes the music, doesn't it? He said. Beethoven knew what he was doing, I can tell you, and one must play as if one understood him. The unmusical person is like the man that takes you canoeing and does not know the river. You may paddle over it without any trouble, but the one with whom you feel safe is the one who knows all the peculiarities difficulties, and also danger points. Your phrase is endangered where the first cadence occurs. There you must keep up the rowing steadily, or that little current will swerve you around, and you may upset. This was a gentle reminder to me of what he said when we were alone, about the theme and keeping smoother tempos, and I realized that it was only kindness that made him speak so impersonally now. In the variations with the octaves I found another valuable point to remember. It was the first time that I had put into practice something he had told me many times about taking single notes. He recommended saying the note just as one was about to strike it. It saved me a top F before the teachers, and I saw that Leshetitsky was smiling. A good technique, he said, contains many tricks. Leshetitsky was speaking in French to the teachers, who had come from Paris, and I saw their amazement to hear this word from him. Their amazement was so great that he supposed they had not understood him. Tricks, he repeated in several languages. You must try all kinds of ways, and try to study from additions with the fewest fingerings. What bad players these men are, generally, you can tell by the fingerings they put down and the pedal, too. Why does one need pedal marks? It is the people who don't listen who need the pedal marked for them, and it is so simple, generally. If you had only heard Rubinstein, he said, you seldom heard the pedal with his playing, but it was always there. He was sensible. Common sense, he said in three or four languages again, that is a great word, common sense. 
After all, you do not need your foot and your hand both. If the hands hold the note, you don't need the foot to hold it. And if the foot holds it, then why the hand too, he said. And just let the air through, he said laughingly. You don't need rules for the pedal. You need common sense and your ear to direct you. May I ask a question, said one of the teachers. Leshetitsky bristled. What is this going to be? he said in an undertone. One of them went to the piano to ask him about the phrasing of a well-known melody. Their amazement increased in leaps and bounds when Leshetitsky asked them what they were playing. He could not remember. To think that Leshetitsky did not know what it was. Then they spoke of an opus, and, to their blankest astonishment, he said he could almost never remember an opus. I know very little, said Leshetitsky seriously. He was also taken very seriously by the teachers. One said that it perhaps was not so surprising after all that he did not know the melody they had played, and that an opus was a very difficult thing to remember. Leshetitsky seemed to be growing good-humoured instead of otherwise, as might well have been, and my lesson proceeded with perhaps more ease than usual. One of the teachers was complimentary of my technique, but asked with some temerity if it was allowed to play the second variation so fast. "'I am glad you have asked me,' said he. "'It did sound too fast, because she played with too much tone.' A little less tone, he said, turning to me, so that it will sound a grade slower. The significance of this answer passed over the heads of the teachers, evidently, but to me was most illuminating, as I had lately joined a small class for the study of acoustics, in order better to understand some of the statements he made in the lessons. Here comes a beautiful variation, said Leshetitsky, and when I started to play it, he stopped me instantly. No, 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 he said. You must be more serious, he said, looking at me and laughing. There is a variation similar to that in the Beethoven variations in C minor. I always think of my grandmother when I hear it, he said. It is a little weird and unearthly. It is calm. Play it calmly, he added. It is as calm as death. One of the teachers asked at this point if he had known his grandmother. No, I did not, he replied. We are getting far away from the music, he said, and the time is short. Let us forget our emotions and begin to play. I had now reached the last variation but one, and was scolded a little for using too much motion of my hands. This light scolding did seem to make the teachers very much animated, and Leshetitsky's good humor and talkativeness, as well as theirs, increased. When I came to the last variation, he said laughingly, Now you can have your up-and-down motions all you like, and the teachers thought this a great joke. Then, at the end, it became more difficult, and I had to try to hear exactly, note for note, what Leshetitsky wanted me to do, and to try to copy him. He played the phrases many times, and for a few moments became stern and thoughtful, which puzzled the teachers. I suppose they wondered if I were going to cry or become confused, but I already knew Leshetitsky too well for this. 
After having spent weeks of daily playing to him of the Schumann fantasy in Ischl and never pleased him at all, going home sadly day after day, believing that I was never meant to be an artist and never could be, and after hearing from day to day from Leschetizky that it was no better, that I had not understood him and that I was not even on the right road, at this, in comparison, I experienced only a slight moment of anxiety. I was more sorry for the teachers, who looked very much agitated and as if they would like to run away. "'You see,' said Leschetizky, "'you must turn completely eloquent at this moment, and every tone must be in its right place. That is a sentence that must be studied, so that it will never fail you. It is dramatic, and every tone must mean something. Your mood is prayerful at this moment.' and you must not become distracted. "'What did you mean there?' asked one of the teachers. "'That means prayer?' "'Yes, no, yes, of course not,' said Leschetizky. "'Don't ask me what it means. "'The music means what it says to you. "'Do you need to put anything more into this than there is there? "'Isn't it beautiful enough without putting anything into it?' To you it may mean something more or something different from what it does to me. One never knows. I cannot tell exactly what it means to you, and you will probably never know what it means to me. She smiles, said Leschetizky, speaking of me, and I do not know exactly what that smile of hers means always, but it means something. Now she cannot smile at all, said Leschetizky. So it is in life. One smiles where another is serious, and this is interpretation. Don't you think so? You have come here very seriously to listen to a lesson, said Leschetizky to one of the teachers. I see that you have brought the Beethoven sonatas and have been writing down words very often. It would interest me greatly to look them over and to see if your words express my real meaning, for if they do not, the words may not really help you. I may have said some things that were perhaps not clear to you. May I look at what you have written? said Leschetizky. Certainly, Professor, replied one of them, but with some embarrassment. Oh, no, said the other. Please don't, please don't. As you like, said Leschetizky, but it would interest me very much. And the book was handed to him. I could see how he was trying to conceal his astonishment. He also left the room for a few moments and I heard afterward that he sat down in the little room beyond the hall and laughed. "'What next?' he exclaimed. "'Now I shall have to be serious, if I ever was in my life.' He returned to the music room, polite but very bright-eyed. "'You have a large class of pupils in Paris?' he inquired. "'Yes, Professor,' they replied. "'And we are there together. We collaborate.' This word almost upset Leschetizky. "'You are acquainted with those two famous teachers in Paris, Mr. Diemer and Mr. Philippe?' "'Yes, Professor.' "'Why do you not go to listen to some of their lessons? They are great pedagogues. They know many things. They are emotional as we are.' "'Yes, Professor, but not so much.' "'Oh,' said Leschetizky, "'how do you know that?' I am sure, said one, they cannot indicate so exactly to their pupils the way to play emotionally. 
nor can I indicate the way to my pupils to play emotionally. That is impossible, said the master. They must be emotional themselves. If you ask me how to play emotionally, then my answer will be, if you have to ask me that question, you can never play emotionally. One of the ladies was apparently very nervous and appeared to be weeping. We are very much fatigued, Professor, she said. We have had a long journey and have been very much depressed in Vienna. We have also been very much disappointed and encouraged. Why is that? asked Lashetitsky. I cannot explain, she answered. But we find the atmosphere here not so serious as we expected. There are very serious people here, replied Lashetitsky, but in an artistic way. They do not wear their seriousness on their sleeves. Now, let me take up the points of your writing that you have allowed me to read. You have written down, You do not upset, but go safely on. If you want it to sound faster, play louder. Listen here, no horseplay here. Be a musician as well as a pianist. Play with joyous motions up and down and laugh a little. Be calm and happy. And, in parenthesis, feel as you felt when grandmother died. Some of these indications I can understand, said Leshetitsky, but others are entirely unintelligible to me. What, may I ask, does this one mean to you? You do not upset, but go safely on? It means, as you said, Professor, that one feels very safe and comfortable, as one would feel canoeing, or possibly, you did not mean just canoeing. We have never been canoeing, so we do not know. And canoeing with someone who is agreeable to you, or else you would not be with him, and that you have a feeling of security with him and do not upset. Now, said Leshetitsky, do you think that your audience or your listeners are going to be able to understand that? We thought, Professor, that you meant us to feel that when we played. There is another, but not well-known teacher in Paris, who has the same ideas. We thought possibly he had been a pupil of yours, Professor. It may be, replied the Master, but I hope not. Now, this other one here, he continued determinedly, let us take them all in order. Listen here. Why particularly there? he asked. Because you meant, we thought, one of them answered, that that part was so beautiful. No, said Leshetitsky. I can dispose of that point very quickly. Good pedaling, good style, good taste all depend, for the most part, on listening to your own playing. Piano playing is not all emotion by any means. You must use your senses and always have them with you, or your emotions count for very little. If you listen well, that in itself is a means of attracting many emotional qualities. Before the third variation in A-flat minor, they had written, Feel as you felt when grandmother died. How was Leshetitsky going to control his face, I wondered. But there was not a sign of amusement, as he asked them how that title would help them to play that variation. But you distinctly said, Professor, that you always thought of your grandmother when you heard something like that variation. So I did. And here was an outlet for his laughter. But I would be sorry, 
he said, if I always thought of her at the time of playing this sonata. Mesdames, he said, did you ever hear of the actor who had no expression in his voice and had never been successful? He had only technique and skill. He was cold and, of course, could never get any applause from his audience. He almost lost his position in the theater when one evening, as he was going on to the stage, he received a telegram that his best friend had just died. He had to play a happy and humorous part that evening, but was overwhelmed with grief. But he suddenly knew how to put such ardor and feeling into his voice that he spoke with warmth and color. His audience liked him for the first time. Someone asked him years afterward what had changed his whole career in acting, and he answered that for the first time in his life that evening he had learned what suffering was, and then his joys meant something to him after that. If I'm going to give you anything of value to take back to Paris, it is my advice to study and teach to bring out the beauties of the music and enjoy yourself more in your playing and let your pupils do likewise. If you label your phrases, you will have to instruct your audiences in these names. And then, where is the music? Way in the shade. Besides, you will play no better. I hope you will not go back to Paris saying that Leschetizky told you what to feel at every turn. There are good teachers there who would disagree with me. Fantasy, he said, is the word. And fantasy means absence of rule. You must try to play from the heart and use your mind for your study, which is way behind you when you come to play. The music is the emotion itself, if you like. Would you like to hear this sonata? He said, as the teachers heaved a sigh and looked rather crestfallen. Then he sat down at his piano and played the A-flat sonata with that intensity of poetical expression that belonged only to him. He tried to teach this quality, but evaded all rules and intentions. The teachers were not hanging their heads in sorrow, or they had perhaps forgotten to do so, as he played the funeral march. They looked rather uplifted and ecstatic than otherwise, and Leschetizky played it very softly and tenderly. At the last movement, they became quite happy and cheerful. Then they said goodbye. He escorted them to the outside door, then went quietly to the window and watched them as they went away. They mean well. How very little a teacher can do for some people. Oh, let me get out to the country, which is not so complicated, he concluded where I can recognize myself and where I do not have to account for every word or every smile.